I'll get you to turn in your Bibles to Romans. The book of Romans, and we'll look at chapter 12, verse 2 this morning. Romans 12.2, which says, tells us, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this precious word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us perfectly, that we can trust and rely on it to teach us your ways and your will, and Father, to help us to grow into the image of your only begotten Son. I pray this morning that our hearts would be opened, Father, to your truth, that we would take it within ourselves, and that seed would be planted and bear root and bear fruit, Lord, in our lives, that you might be glorified through it. We thank you once again for this time and this place, and I pray that we would make use of, Father, all the resources and all the grace that you give us, that we might glorify you in our lives. I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever heard of the word brainwashed? Who's been brainwashed before? Oh, we've had a few. Brainwashed. They normally use the word brainwashed to talk about people that have been um, uh, psychologically manipulated um, to conform to a particular belief um, without them realising it. I'm here to share something with you is that almost everyone has been brainwashed because everyone has been and is being conditioned one way or the other without them even realising it. The society you live in is brainwashing you day by day. Okay, they are, You are being conditioned by the things that are around you, by the, the thoughts and by the people who are constantly trying to put forward their argument about why things are the way they are and the way they should be. Everyone is trying to brainwash everyone else. We are brainwashed from a very early age. In fact, we are being conditioned from a very early age in our society, in every society, because as children we are taught by our parents, who are taught by their parents, who are taught by the culture, who eventually conform to the culture that you live in, correct? I see you all dressed in a certain way this morning. I see you behaving in a certain way. Okay? And that's because you have conformed, in a sense, to the culture that you live in, which in most cases actually makes sense. Because if you didn't conform to the culture that you live in, you may be thrown in jail or something worse. Okay? So conforming to your culture has certain benefits to it because it helps us to function within a particular culture. But within that culture, there are other things that you're being taught and things such, things such as secularism and humanism and other things that permeate through the educational system and through the media and through other things which, in a very subtle way, are teaching you how to think on a day-by-day basis without you even thinking about it. Okay? You may notice that in, um, if you watch TV at all, you will notice that in commercials and in... More and more shows, more and more TV programs, more and more movies. There are things that are put in there 
that they wouldn't have put in there 20 years ago or 30 years ago, okay? An obvious one to that is uh, a thing such as uh, uh, homosexual relationships, okay? You'll notice that if you watch any TV at all... In fact, I was watching uh, TV the other day and it was in a commercial. Um, you probably noticed it. What were, they, what were they selling again? It was a food thing. Sorry? McCain's chips. McCain's chips, yeah. McCain's chips. Um, had pictures or images of lovely families together enjoying their time together and one of those particular families was of two men and their children. Okay, now go back 20 years, you would not have seen that. What I'm telling you is that um, for better or for worse, the society is being conditioned. So that in a commercial on TV is telling you that they're saying that that's an acceptable thing in our society now. Does that make sense to you? All right. So regardless of what culture you come from, what time you live in, you are being conditioned, you're being brainwashed one way or the other. The mind is a very interesting place and, and this, the mind is, is, uh, is a place where we formulate what we believe and what we know and how we make sense of the world. And what ends up happening is we absorb a lot of information every day of our lives. A lot of that's being filtered by other people before it gets to us. Does that make sense? Okay. But in our culture, and I speak primarily of the West because you can probably put Australia, um, England or Europe and, and the United States and New Zealand and Canada and those sort of places, we have a similar... We're going in a particular direction, okay? Um, Africa and Asia are probably going in a slightly different direction, but things um, that we would classify as acceptable in our culture may not be acceptable in other, in other cultures, but we're becoming used to it now. We're becoming used to seeing it and accepting it, and things that were not acceptable a number of years ago are acceptable now. I heard just recently that um, in story time in uh, libraries around Australia and, uh, and overseas, they have transvestites reading books to children, okay? Um, and that's for a particular purpose. It's to teach children from a very young age that that is acceptable in our society. So if anyone ever says to you that as a Christian you've been brainwashed, um, you may want to share how brainwashing takes place. Brainwashing doesn't normally happen overnight. Brainwashing is something that happens over years of time without you knowing it. They say that you can kill a frog by, uh, by stepping on it, first of all. You can kill a frog in many different ways. But if you turn the, the heat up on the water that the frog's uh, sitting in very, very slowly, the, you can get the frog to eventually cook itself without even realising that the temperature's turning up. It'll just... So you sit there and get to a point where it dies. Okay, I'm not sure if that's true. I've never tried it before. I wouldn't suggest you actually try it. It's probably not, not good for the frog. Um, but I've heard that as an argument over and over again. So what ends up happening in cultures is that people in high places, people who in intellectual places, um, make decisions about which direction a society would go and what's best for that society. And what they do is they don't hit you overnight with something. What they do is they slowly turn up the temperature. And over a period of time, over 1, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you haven't really noticed much of a change happening. It becomes part of your life. That, I would submit to you, is being brainwashed because you don't know the direction they're trying to take you in. 
Okay? And it happens through the medium in a lot of other places. But the, the, the mind is a place that can be manipulated. It can be taught. It's a place where we make sense of everything. And it's also a place that's under attack and is essentially a battleground. Um, when we speak about the Christian life and secular life. There is a right mind. I've actually labelled, uh, I've, I've titled this particular sermon, Are You In Your Right Mind? Okay, you understand what that, when we speak of the word, are you in your right mind? If you're not in your right mind, you're, you're not in a good place. So my question to you today, and the thing I'd like you to question about yourself is, am I in my right mind um, in my life and do I use my right mind uh, on a regular basis. Last week, last week, sorry, I made reference to the verse before this one, verse 1, which speaks about our reasonable service being that we sacrifice our lives on a daily basis to God. Okay, so the, the, be, becoming living sacrifices is something that is our reasonable service. That's what we do with our bodies. That's what we do with our lives. Today we're focusing on the mind. And how the mind actually works, okay? And, and what God expects of us with our minds. The world we live in has changed a lot in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. In fact, with all the wealth that we have today, which is probably more than double what our, our parents had and probably double what their parents had and the freedoms that we have and the things that we do and the th things that we can do, what's funny is that people are more pessimistic today than they were 20 or 30 years ago and more pessimistic than they were 60 years ago with less. And they struggled with things that were much worse and with situations that were more dramatic. I mean, they went through world wars. We haven't experienced the war in, in, our, in my generation. I haven't experienced the war, a major war, like a world war. Yet we have, if you go back one more generation, they experienced two world wars. And they were more positive than us. The thing is, the challenge is, is that as evolutionary dogma, as humanism, secular humanism has permeated our culture more and more and settled into the Western world, the fruits of it have manifested themselves in the particular ways that people think and act. The rejection of God's word. Australia is essentially a post-Christian uh, uh, country. Actually, it was probably never a Christian country, but it is more post-Christian now than it ever has been because it has thrown away the word of God and the belief in God itself. It's, Australia is becoming, week by week and year by year, a more secular, humanistic Society, which means they're doing away with God. They say, we don't need God in our lives. We don't need the Bible in our lives. In fact, it's contrary now to what we believe. It doesn't fit anymore. But as a result of people throwing away uh, the word of God and belief in God, it's left a gaping hole in people's lives and in people's thoughts. What do I replace those things with are things that don't really satisfy and don't make sense of everything. There's always gaps. The notion that mankind is nothing more special than any other animal is something that's, that's permeated our culture, that's taught. Whereas if you go back 50 years ago, uh, an eagle's egg was not worth a human life. Okay? Yet today, an eagle's egg, if you ask the average person, what's more valuable? What's more important? You'll notice that people will think about that. 
whether actually an eagle or a protected species is actually more important than a human. The notion that we have just evolved from bacteria, that we are nothing more really than bacteria that's, that's changed and morphed over the years, that there is no purpose, no meaning to life, and as some have even described mankind as a cancer upon the world. There is a particular belief out there, and it's actually permeated through the higher echelons of, uh, of society, that man is actually a cancer in the world who is just slowly destroying the world. Does that make sense to you? <coughs> so there are those people who are, are fantasising about the, the, this, this notion that we need to dramatically reduce the population of this planet. Some have said that the optimal population is only 500 million. How do you get rid of? We have a six billion. What do you do with them? There are those who are thinking actively about that because man is a cancer. And if you notice all the stuff about global warming and all the stuff that goes on about in the world, most of that is pointing to one direction, that you and I are cancers and that we need to be eradicated for the good of the planet. Now, you know, you think of that and if you have that embedded in your thought processes that we are a cancer on the planet and that we are destroying everything and that really it's best for the planet that, it's, that we won't, we're not here, I mean, how does that make you feel as a person? What outlook would that give you in life? What, what purpose would that, would that give you? To think of yourself as a, 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 viral, a virus or a, or a cancer that is, um, that is uh, dangerous. That's a doctrine that comes directly from the pits of hell, I'll submit to you as well. But as a result of this type of thinking, as a result of evolutionary uh, thinking, as a result of mankind being a cancer, as a result of the, the, the throwing away of God in our culture, um, there is more mental illness, depression, suicide, drug abuse, alcoholism and addiction today than there ever has been before. And yes, per capita, not just, not just in number. The minds of people have been and are being conditioned from a very young age to set these beliefs as the foundations for their lives. But they are leaving them on very shaky ground. I mean, what foundation do you have for your life when you're just an evolved bacteria that's, n that's worth no more than a dog or a cat? Really. <coughs> this makes people vulnerable to mental illness, fears and addictions having to deal daily with a life devoid of real meaning. I mean, if we believe in Jesus, we'll believe his words. And when he tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which has built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And I submit to you that many people have fallen, have fallen into suicide and depression because the house couldn't stand. The house can't stand when there's no foundation, when there's no meaning or purpose. So in this verse here, when it says, do not be conformed to this world, it's speaking about a system of belief and everything that stands opposed to the knowledge of God as revealed in his word. It is a system orchestrated by the devil 
but isn't just manifested in our society, has been manifested over thousands of years and across every culture and every political system. He has permeated every culture in our history. It is every commonly held notion that exists within the hearts of every fallen being that they are the masters of their own destiny, that God can come second in their lives, that there is no meaning to life other than making the best of what you got today. That they can achieve success and meaning without having God or the Creator as part of their lives, without having to answer to anyone higher than themselves, without having to consider that there are laws in place, spiritual laws, that are just as valid as physical laws. Yet they believe that, and this is what they're taught, is that there are physical laws in place like gravity. Can anyone escape gravity and the effects of gravity? No, you can't. Yet they, they're taught that there are spiritual laws that you can escape. That even though there are spiritual laws in place, that, that somehow you can circumvent those laws. You can get around them. They're not really valid. They're just people's opinions. But I'll submit to you this morning that spiritual laws are even more valid than physical laws. Because God has shown us that he can walk on water. This system, this worldly system, is a system of belief that God's laws are less important or consequential than the world's laws. It is a system that is as subtle as a snake, but as dangerous as a snake. It lurks in every corner and seeks dominion in every heart. In our culture, the one we live in today, that system is taught and promoted in every sphere of influence and in every level of society. It's promoted in music, shown on television. It's taught in our educational system from a very early age. It lures people through entertainment and traps them with drugs and alcohol. It elevates itself to the position of God and teaches people that it's all about you. It's all about me, that I'm the centre of the universe and I can create my own meaning. And everything that I do must conform itself. Everything that I do must satisfy this tyrannical God that lives within me called my ego. That's the God that I have to serve. Thus it enslaves people to their own egos. To their, to their own higher causes and religions and ultimately entices that person to self-destruct. You ever heard of the term lemmings before? You ever, you ever heard the, 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 uh, the myth? I'm not sure if it's a myth, but it's uh, where lemmings will continue to follow each other even if they, they're going over a cliff. Apparently it's been observed. I don't know if that's true, but most of the people in this world are, fall, are falling off a cliff and following each other well and truly off that cliff without even realising that there is one there. In fact, the, uh, the American Indians used to, um, uh, in the 1800s, I believe it was, um, when they used to um, uh, hunt a bison or buffalo, they used, to, they used to corral them into an area and then get them to, to stampede in this particular area. And you know where they'd get them to stampede? Off a cliff. 
Because once the momentum was going with the whole herd of buffalo, once they got to the edge of that cliff, when they were worried about what was behind them, they weren't thinking too much about what was in front. When they got to the edge of the cliff, you can't stop. And so they, they'd heard, the ho- they, they'd corral and push the whole herd of buffalo willingly over a cliff because of fear of what was behind them. And they'd fall off that cliff to their deaths and then they, the Indians would simply go down and start carving up. I'll submit to you that that's what's happening to us. That's what happens in this world. That behind you there's a fear of what's, of what's coming. So people are being corralled in a particular direction. There's a particular type of thinking that is pushing everyone in a particular, a particular cliff. And that cliff ultimately leads to self-destruction. If one were to perfectly obey. And the one really controlling the narrative in the background... The one who's really running the system is the devil. This is exactly what the scriptures warn us about when it declares in Romans... Actually, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 21 this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So when the imagination is allowed to run wild and not have boundaries, in other words, I think to myself, oh, I wonder if it would be a good idea to kill my neighbour this morning. I like that car that he's got, and if I killed him, I could have his car. That's stepping outside of the boundaries, and it becomes what's called a vain imagination. But people are full of vain imaginations. In fact, everyone who's, who has thrown away the notion of God, what happens to the boundaries in their lives and their thinking? Well, who sets the boundaries in their thinking? Society? Really? Because there are those who would argue that society is the, is the highest form of law. Oh, really? Okay. So I wonder if you're living in Nazi Germany before the Second World War, whether that would have been the highest level of law when your leaders were telling you it was a good idea to round up the Jews and put them in concentration camps and let's just gas them and get them out of the way because they're causing us problems. Let's round up every gypsy that's out there. Let's round up every person who has a deformity or who, is, who considers themselves homosexual. Let's round them up and let's burn them all. Let's get them out of the way. No, that's, oh, that, that's too extreme an example. That can't be. Or maybe communist Russia. How's that one for a good one? Who killed 40 million of their own people. That would be a good uh, higher power. Anyone who's opposed to the, to the ruling class gets thrown into a gulag in the middle of Siberia where you're forced to labour until you're dead or frozen. Both. And I can, I can keep on going on and on and on. There are, every culture has problems within it, which means that culture does, should not and does not set the standard by which people should be thinking. Culture's boundaries change and morph over time. It's quite acceptable today to abort a baby. It's acceptable in our culture, is it not? 
In fact, no one even has a second thought about it. To kill the baby that's growing in the womb of a, of a, of a woman. That's quite acceptable. In fact, some people feel even the, the very thought of bringing that up as a subject becomes a, a, an uneasy thing to talk about. Yet, biblically, the boundary is set. Because according to God, that is already a life that he knows. He knows the name of that, of that child already growing in the room. It doesn't have to be born. The fact that he hasn't taken its, its first breath doesn't mean that it's, it's then living, but, but not otherwise. But yet in our culture, that boundary has moved over time. Go back 100 years, that boundary was not there. That boundary was very different. It was narrower. You would not think to step outside that boundary if you had God in your life. But yet now with the, with the excommunication of God from people's lives, that boundary has grown wider and wider. And there are some people even advocating infanticide. So if a woman's right to kill a baby in the womb is true, then she also has a right to kill it outside the womb. And there are even those who have suggested that it's still okay once the baby's born to kill it then. And we say, oh, shock horror. How could anyone ever think of that? And I'll guarantee you in 20 years, they'll keep bringing it up year after year after year after year. It will not be something that you think shock horror. Because that's the way the devil works. Vain imaginations means that people's foolish hearts get darkened. The imaginations of men's minds lead them to very, very dark places. We see that in every culture. We see the evil that man can do one to another. And if you don't think that man is evil by nature, or is that a fallen being, mate, you just got to look at the news every night. And the degradation of the mind is described in scripture in a number of different places. And it describes minds that can be degraded, changed, and, and ultimately corrupted from what they were intended to be. I want to show you some of, those, some of those verses. Turn to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26. We're going to go through these in, in pretty quick uh, steps, so get ready with your, uh, with your Bibles. The first thing I want to explain to you, or the first type of mind that I want to share with you this morning, is that there are minds that begin to wander. A wandering mind means it hasn't not going in a set direction. It starts to veer off in a particular direction. Now you'll notice Isaiah 26, 3, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, doesn't actually say or mention a wandering mind, but the contrary to it. Of to this verse actually tells you something very, very deep. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Okay, does that make sense? God will keep you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed on him. In other words, a mind that is stayed on God is a mind that's settled on God, is a mind that's focused on God. But if a mind isn't focused on God, then what is that mind? If a mind isn't set and, and, and going in the direction of God, where is it going? It's wandering. It's not set. It's not fixed. It's moving in a different direction. like having a compass that doesn't point north all the time. It points in different directions. So you end up going in different directions as you follow it. Well, that's a wandering mind. Go to Luke chapter 12, verse 29. 
There are minds that wander. There are minds that go, begin to go to places they're not supposed to be in. In Luke chapter 12, verse 29, the Lord tells us here, And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. So there are minds that are doubtful. There are minds that sort of say they believe something, but they don't really believe it. They doubt it. So there are minds that wander. There are minds that doubt. Okay, They may not want to doubt, but there are minds that doubt. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll look at verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 5 says... Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So what type of mind is he speaking about here? A corrupted mind, a mind that does not work properly. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 5 speaks of men of corrupt minds. Minds that actually are broken that don't spit out the right information, that don't process properly. They're corrupt. And it says here, and destitute of the truth, which means they're not using the right information in the first place. Turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 15. So we have a wandering mind, we have a doubtful mind, we have a corrupted mind. And Titus chapter 1, verse 15 tells us, unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled, defiled, unclean. So because their mind is unclean, because it's been, it's been corrupted and because it's, it's actually dirty itself, it sees everything else as dirty. Because it's, because it's unholy, everything else becomes unholy to it. It sees everything else outside of itself in a defiled way so we have a defiled mind and a conscience turn to Romans chapter 1 verse 28 And this is the process and the pattern that we see over and over again in the scripture. Because Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, which means I'm going to push out this notion of God. I don't need him in my life. It says God gave them over to a reprobate mind. To do those things which are not convenient. The meaning of the word reprobate is a rebellious and degenerate mind. Degenerate. God gave them over to their own degenerate mind to become even more degenerate. So there are, there are reprobate minds. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It says there, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 
there are minds that are completely blind. Completely blind. So convinced that Christianity might not be true, that God cannot be true, that any, any discussion can't be entered into. They will not contemplate the thought of having the possibility that there is a God and that somehow I'm accountable to him or that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I need to actually get right with God through him. Blinded. So we see in, this, in, this, in these various verses of scripture, the mind can be described in many different ways. It can be damaged, it can be corrupted, it can become a reprobate, it can be blinded. The mind, a lot of things can happen to the mind. If you've got your mind, look after it. Because there are plenty of ways to ruin it and destroy it. And there are plenty of people in this world with destroyed minds who can't think properly anymore. I mean, I think of people on drugs. There is a tipping point to people who are on ice and those types of, uh, of drugs that you get to the point where you can't actually fix your mind anymore. It can't work anymore. It doesn't make logical sense. It can't reason through anything anymore. And there are plenty of people in society with that problem. Yeah, Judas had a type of mind like that. A mind that was beyond repair. It was beyond repentance. It was beyond hope. He got to the point where he was in so dis- dis- such despair. He felt guilty about what he did. But he saw no hope in God. He rejected the notion that he could go to God. And because he rejected the notion, who did he have left? He had himself. And he eventually hung himself. So what do you do to combat this evil system that's trying to infiltrate and to condition us to think along the devil's ways, that seeks to enslave and degrade our minds? Well, that's what we're looking at. In a nutshell, and in more dramatic language, Paul says it in this way. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's what we've been called to do in a nutshell. To cast down imaginations. Don't let your mind wander outside of the boundaries that God has provided in his word. And everything else that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, which means every commonly held notion and belief that our society holds to be true that's outside of the truth of God and then bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is our battleground. This is the battleground for a believer. But it's the Waterloo of every fallen being who hasn't got God in their lives. See, that battle's already lost if you're not saved. You've already been conditioned. If you haven't been saved by the blood of Christ, you've already lost the battle. And you're going downhill very quickly. There is no winning. There is no battle for them. They've lost already. God has to do something to a person to give them victory. He has to give people a new mind. The world will seek to conform you to its own will even when you are saved. It will seek to conform you, to draw you back to itself. There is a pressure from the outside. Now, the world doesn't have to expend a lot of energy conforming those that are already conformed to it. Does that make sense? 
Why would the devil spend a lot of energy trying to conform people that are already conformed, that are already lost, that are willingly walking to that cliff edge? They're already trapped. They're already ignorant. They're already ignorant of their imprisonment. The devil has no need to conform them because they happily walk to their deaths. The command to us, though, the ones who have been given a new mind and a new nature, says not to be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed. And this, this tells us three really important things. The fact that he actually says that, do not be conformed to this world, tells us three really important things. That the world, first of all, that the world wants you to be conformed to it. It, it has a hook. And that hook is our flesh. And it's trying to drag us back to itself. The second is that you and I have the ability not to be conformed. Otherwise, God would not have commanded it. Does that make sense? If God says, don't be conformed to this world, then we can resist it. Then we can stop from being conformed since we are commanded by God. And the third is that not being conformed requires decisions to be made choices to be made and very possibly or probably many choices have to be made to continue not to be conformed to it don't let anyone ever tell you or teach you that you do not have the ability to make good choices as a believer yes there is a battle that we need to fight each and every day but that battle is winnable according to the word of God it's winnable for us if we stay focused we have everything we need for this fight. God's given it to us. In fact, we have more in our generation today than we have ever had. I see every one of you sitting in your seats with a Bible in your lap. Do you know, 200 years ago, not everyone had a Bible in their lap. Go back 400 years, very few people had a Bible. We have more resources today than ever before. God gives us everything we need to win. We just have to be focused. We have everything we need to win the fight. And mind your thoughts. When you are tempted to complain, when you go through suffering, or think that something isn't fair in your life, and you're tempted to complain and murmur, let me let you in on a secret that's going to make your life a whole lot happier. Okay? When you're going through life and things don't go your way, let me remind you that the secret to a happy life is understanding that life isn't fair. It's not. Life isn't fair. If anyone thinks life is fair, how do you explain Jesus' life? Is that fair? To live a perfect life and then to be crucified at the end of it. Is that fair? What about the Apostle Paul, who did his best to share the gospel with people who needed to be saved, and he suffers shipwrecks and floggings and stonings? Is that fair? No. The quicker you get, and I get in my mind, that life is not fair, and we only see it from one angle. God sees it from the other angle. I'm not saying that God isn't fair. I'm saying life isn't fair. And the moment we, we, we look at life and we say, yeah, I expect this to happen, the happier you're going to be, the less 
confronted you're going to be, the less shocked you're going to be. The other thing is to understand that life is full of suffering. It's full. We see suffering everywhere. So the moment, the, 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 the moment we get in, in, in our heads that suffering is a part of life, it is a part of it. The happier you and I are going to be. Because you're going to accept it. You're going to work with it rather than trying to avoid every bit of suffering. That is not our call to avoid every bit of suffering. In fact, Jesus calls us to more. He calls us to more suffering. Because the more suffering that we endure, the closer that we are to him. God never, ever promised us in Scripture to shield us from suffering. Ever. He doesn't promise us to shield us from injustice or trouble. And that should make perfect sense to us. Because we live in enemy territory. And this is the whole purpose of this. Don't be conformed to the world. Well, what's going on? The world is trying to conform you to its standards. And when you don't want to conform, what's it going to do? It's going to reject you and it's going to cause you suffering. In fact, if you have no suffering in your life, the probability is that you're not actually resisting that pressure from the world. We live in enemy territory. Enemy territory is ruled by a tyrant who hates us and wants our demise. We're surrounded by people who have accepted a system that is contrary to the one that we now have put our trust and hope in. We are surrounded by that. When you don't really fit in and you're swimming against the current, you're going to attract suffering. And even our old nature is working against us. So we have a battle on our hands. We are called not to be conformed to this world. Not to be conformed, which is hard and takes effort compared to allowing myself just to be swept down the river by the flow. It's easy for us just to, to follow the world. Easy. Let's take it easy. Follow what everyone else is doing. I'm not going to suffer any, any particular... Uh, Headaches from anyone else? I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. That's perfect. Easy. Yet God doesn't call us to a life of easy. He calls us to a life of not being conformed. Being conformed is the easiest thing in the world to do. Yet God says, don't do that. One requires effort. The other requires no effort. One requires suffering. The other one will lead you to a life of Not as much. Conforming is a surrender. To concede. To give up in the face of opposition and pressure. But we have been called not to conform. Not to give up. Because our saviour didn't give up. He didn't give up on us. And didn't give up on God's plan and he took that plan, he took that faithfulness all the way to the cross in order to save us. So if he didn't give up, we should neither. Because if we're called Christians, it means that we follow Christ, does it not? So we've been called not to give up. And he knows that we can do it. Instead he tells us, be transformed. 
Don't be conformed. Don't give up. Don't let the world sweep you away, whatever it's teaching you, whatever it's telling you, because the world changes every day and it could be setting you on a path for destruction. He says, but be ye transformed. There is a huge difference of being conformed and being transformed. One, as I've said, requires you to succumb, to give up, to allow the pressure from the outside to sweep you in a particular direction. To give you a particular dictionary definition, conformity is a type of social influence involving a change in behaviour or belief or behaviour in order to fit in with a group. That's what it means to be conformed. To fit in because of the pressure on the outside and teens have this big pressure on them to conform to their other teenage friends because if they don't fit the same mould, wear the same clothes, speak the same language, do the same things, they are ostracised. There is great pressure on that. You look at that in, in, in school and you will notice what pressure is and what conformity is. And group pressure may take different forms including bullying, persuasion, teaching, uh, teasing and criticism. And if it's true of the, spirit, of the physical world, it's true of the spiritual world. The devil's much more organised. Transformation, on the other hand, is the process of changing from one thing into another. An example of a transformation is a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Okay? There's no pressure from the outside. The change is coming from the inside. One involves outward pressure, trying to squeeze you in a particular direction. The other one comes from an internal influence that's coming out of that person, is, is causing a change in that person's life. The word transform, funnily enough, only ever comes up two other times in the, in the whole of the Bible, the word transformed. And you know what's, what's funny about it? It refers to two bad transformations. It refers to the devil and his servants. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. We're getting a bit warm in here. So we'll put some air on. Put some more air on. Now look at the word transforming in these passages. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. But the word comes up three times, that passage. It doesn't come up anywhere else. And the warning here for believers is that Satan can do such a good job of transforming himself into an angel of light that he can even fool believers. That's how good he looks. He looks exactly like an angel. And if he can fool believers, then his servants can also be very convincing. So you'd better watch out. His servants can seem super sincere, can seem as if they know the Bible backwards. And they, they seem to be right in their appearance, but are as corrupt as their false teachings. Satan has been transforming himself into an angel of light and presenting himself as such for thousands of years. He's been doing that particular job very well. Where do you think 
the evil religions of the Canaanites came from when the Israelites came into Canaan and saw people sacrificing their babies to Baal and Asherah. Where do you think those uh, religions came from? Where do you think that every opposed religion to Christianity that came after Christianity originated from? Satan has been presenting himself as an angel of light over and over and over again. You know, he once visited an Arab man named Muhammad in a cave and said, I'm Gabriel. And said, let me tell you what the real teaching is and what the Christians and the Jews have missed out on. Let me tell you what the real, what God really wants you to know. So Muhammad says that the angel Gabriel came and visited him. The same angel Gabriel that came and visited Mary, that went to visit Joseph, the same angel Gabriel that visited Daniel, has now come to, an, to a man in Arabia and said, this is what the truth is, which contradicts all the other visits that he made to the earth. Who is that guy? Who is he? That he gives a different message to the one that he's already given. He presented himself in the 1820s to a man named Joseph Smith <coughs> as an angel who went on to start the Mormon church with its corrupt teachings. Alan G. White, those of you who may know that particular name, began the Seventh-day Adventist. She called herself a prophetess. Where was she getting all her prophecies from? Well, apparently she had an angel guy who was giving her the stuff. A fellow called Charles Taze Russell, who was influenced by Seventh-day Adventism, went on to start the Jehovah's Witnesses, another false religion, and began the Watchtower organisation who teach that Jesus came back in the early 1900s in the form of Michael the Archangel and has been living happily in the United States in a special house they made for him. They won't tell you that when they knock on your door. That's not to mention all the New Age spin-offs that we get in our culture. That's not to mention all the rebranding of those, of those particular cults and, and, uh, and occultic things that are rebranded forms of Hinduism and Buddhism and, those, and other such uh, uh, nonsense, which have spirit guides and angels teaching them everything contrary to scripture. There is one thing that I've noticed in every in my studies of uh, New Age uh, teaching and that's, that every angel that comes to people and people have spirit guides and people see angels and they teach them stuff, every one of those angels says, oh, Jesus is good. Jesus is like one of us. Jesus is a prophet, but he's not God. They'll all say the same thing, all exactly the same thing. And that salvation is not to be found just in Jesus, but it's been found in many paths and that they're all leading to the same place. This is also a conditioning that we've had in our culture. Is that one religion can't say it has the truth over the other ones. The devil's been busy, alright? Starting many new religions 
and trying his best to corrupt Christianity. So in addition to his corruptions, he's got plenty of servants willingly eager to promote his corruptions. And the point of this is to show you that in all of their sincerity, and I don't doubt their sincerity, I don't doubt the people that come knocking on our doors, with their Mormons or if they're Jehovah's Witness. I don't doubt their sincerity one iota. They're not there thinking they're deceiving everyone else. They're there genuinely sharing what they believe is the right way. But in all of their sincerity, they can't all be right, can they? There can only be one because they contradict. They all contradict each other. All these people follow false religions, have been deceived and have put their faith in a transformation that's happened in front of them. They've trusted something that looks so genuine. It looks so real and so convincing. They've trusted their eternal souls to that thing. Let <coughs> And they've allowed the word of God to go to the side. And they've allowed someone else to interpret that word for them. So they take a regurgitated message from the Bible and they say, I'm going to listen to that person. Which is why Paul, the apostle, said it's dangerous for people to say, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of so-and-so. It's not people that we follow here. There isn't one person who came down and gave us the truth apart from our Saviour. And there isn't one word that we trust outside of the word of God if it doesn't align with that word. But the transformation that the scriptures speak about concerning us may be perceptible to the world. So when the Bible tells us to be transformed, what it's saying is you, our goal is to look like Christ. That's our goal. And the world may not see that in you. But you know who does? God. God ultimately sees your heart, your mind. He sees your transformation. And he's the one working on it. The extent of our transformation is really determined and judged by him and him alone. And in the end, his opinion is the only one that really matters. So how does this transformation come about? Well, it's, it comes about by the renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind. So it says, don't be conformed, be transformed. And how do I get transformed, Lord? Well, renew your mind. Well, what? Renew your mind? Like, what do I do with that? Well, it's an ongoing process. The renewing of our mind and the transformation that comes with it is an ongoing process that is continuing throughout our whole of our lives. Once you get saved, that transformation is taking place day by day. The renewing of our mind is taking place day by day. And the transformation is akin to what we call progressive sanctification. That's a big word. That simply means we're changing and morphing over time. We, we if we allow ourselves, are becoming more like our saviour are thinking more like our saviour, are behaving more like our saviour. We're becoming more like his image. When a person is born again, the Bible says they're given a new mind. It is a mind that, is, that, that can comprehend the spiritual, whereas a, a, a person's mind who is not saved can't comprehend the spiritual. They can't make tails or heads of it because we have a spiritual connection with the Lord. But it is a mind when you're born again that is still young and needs maturing. When a person is young, yeah, they're given a mind. It's like a baby. When they're born, they have a mind. But there's a lot of things that haven't connected yet. It knows how to breathe. It knows how to eat. It only knows a few things, right? What does a baby know how to do? Eat, cry, and poop. 
right? When a person is born again spiritually, put the pooping aside for the moment, you know how to eat, cry. And God says, feed, get fed with the milk of the word of God. And I'll take care of the, I'll take care of protecting you. You see, God gives us a mind, but that mind has to be developed. And just like a child grows through infancy, and then it goes to becomes a, 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 a child, and then it, then it grows into teens and adolescence, and then that's exactly what happens to a Christian when they're saved. They don't know everything at the beginning when they're saved. They don't have to. God gives you and wraps you up and protects you. And then as you get more and more, God gives you more and more freedom as you go along. And he wants you to develop your mind. And in your, that mind that he's given you, it begins to piece together all the things that God is teaching you. You're making sense of the spiritual world and how it connects with the physical world. But understand that we grow and mature. As we're led by the Spirit into various paths of life, those things that we learn from God and through his word, he teaches us how to put those things into practice. So the things that we learn, he actually gets us to use and that reinforces the learning. You know, uh, uh, where is Paul? Okay. Um, Paul, how many times have you hit a forehand down the line? Have you, have you given us, have you, um, have you ever counted that number? Millions. Millions of times. Okay. Now, why do you have to keep on doing that? Surely after the, you know, you've done it 50 times that you would have learned. Why do you have to keep on doing So that when I need to do it, I don't have to think about it. Ah, so you begin to develop the habit. Correct. Your mind automatically thinks about it without you having to think about it, which is exactly what the Spirit of God does in our lives. What he does, he teaches us something. For example, you would have taught your students the techniques of how to hit that ball down the line. I'm sure I'm doing it perfectly right now. Okay. Still waiting for that free lesson, by the way. Um, but the point is, you can know the technique, how to put your feet how to stand with your stance, where to be looking, um, and how to actually follow through. So you can know all those things in your mind, but unless you've done it over and over and over again, it doesn't come naturally. You look awkward while you're doing it. You feel awkward. You know, if it was me, I'd be tripping over my feet while I'm trying to do it. But this is the same way when you're, when you're learning about applying God's word in the real world. So what God does, he teaches us and says, this is the technique. This is how you do it. You stand here. You look in this direction and then you do it, right? And then we first time we do it, we go, oh, it's right outside the line. You guys try it again and you do it again. And it's exactly the same way our spiritual mind works as our physical mind. The more you do it, the more it just becomes a natural thing that you don't think about. Those of you who are mature in Christ know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are new in Christ are still trying to find your feet. Now, that's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong at all. In fact, lean on the ones who have got it all worked out and keep on looking at them. That's why the Apostle Paul says, look at me. Right? Look at me. If you want to know how to live like Christ, just look at me if it's going to make it easier for you. And so if Paul's teaching his, his students, he's saying to them, look at the way I do it. Because if I've got that picture in my mind, it'll, it'll make it easier for me to actually do it properly. But it's going to take practice on my behalf to make that a part of my life. So when God tells us that we are to forgive, 
those who wrongfully use us or abuse us and disrespect us, does that come naturally? No, it doesn't come naturally. That's one of the harder shots in tennis. That's where you got that's that's the overhead lob or something like that, right? But when you begin to do it once, it's difficult. Doesn't work. You do it twice, three times, four times. After a while, it becomes like second nature. And I was speaking about all those things that the gifts of the spirit or the gift of the spirit, because it, it includes a whole lot of different things. If we do that and we practice those things, if we forgive and love and self-sacrifice and look out for other people, if, we, if I'm looking to edify you and help you to grow, which is what I'm, I'm charged to do here, right? My goal is to edify you, to help build you up in the faith. Okay? But that's every one of our jobs, not just me. So your job is to look out for other, other believers and say, how do I edify that brother or sister? To grow in the faith, to take that next step of faith, huh? to, to learn and be... You can say to them, look at the way I do it. Look at the way I, look at the way I did that. Huh? See how easy it was? And then they'll, they'll be encouraged. And I'll say, oh, maybe I can do it too. Because this life is not easy. Suffering is part of it. We have a huge and intelligent adversary out there who seeks our destruction. So if we don't work together as a team, what hope do we have to win? If we're working against each other, if we don't care for each other, it's like being in a, in a battlefield, in, a, in an army that doesn't care about each other. It doesn't take, take uh, notice of each other. In fact, most Christians probably take pot shots at each other. Spend more time taking pot shots at each other than they do the enemy, rather than working together. So there are plenty of things to learn in the Word of God, but it's the practice that makes all the difference. I can keep all the knowledge that I've learned in the Word of God in my head. But if I don't put it in practice, what good is it? It's nothing. In fact, I'll be judged by it. So this is how we grow. This is how we are transformed. We are transformed because God teaches us and then we put that into practice and we begin to look more and more like Christ as his nature takes hold in our lives. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We've been given the mind of Christ. No one can instruct the Lord, but he can instruct us. He can, and we can be in our right mind, not in our wrong mind. And how do we do that? Let me just close with some, uh, some pointers for you. We first need to believe and be confident that we are saved and born again. If you don't have that worked out from the beginning, you're on shifting sand here. If you don't know whether you're saved or whether you're not, if you don't know if you've been born again or whether you're not, where, where are you going? Are you trying to earn it? Are you trying to redo it? Are you, where are you? So the first thing is to be convinced that you're actually saved. And when you're saved, be, understand what it means that you're born again, that you've been given God's nature and He's secured your eternal destiny. Once you've got that settled down, you can go to stage number two. But if you haven't got that sorted out right now, you can't even get to step number two. You need to get that first step out of the way because that's the most crucial and the most critical for yourself and for everyone else around you. The second thing we need to be convinced of is that the new mind that we've been given is good. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 with me for a moment. I'm running, I'm running behind time. My apologies. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You need to believe that. If you want victory in your life, if you want to be transformed, then you need to believe that God has given you a sound mind, which you can use. But you have another mind, which is not sound, which is the old way of thinking. The question is, which one you put into gear and drive? The next one is that you need to believe that God loves you. And that you have been called to love him. Don't need to turn there, but if you want to write this one down, Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. There are plenty of things that people love in this world. To love someone means your mind is, does your mind go to them often, or it doesn't, if you love someone? If, you're, if you say you love someone, but your mind never goes to that person, and your mind is continually going to other things other than that person, I'll, I'll, I'll submit to you that there might be a problem with your love. If you never think of... We've got Brother Sam at the back over there, who looks after his mum. So she's in a nursing home at the moment, and Sam is there most days, right? Almost every day. If his mind never went to his mother who's in a nursing home by herself, you could question Sam's love for his mother, couldn't you? Like if weeks, days and weeks and months went by and he, and he never went to visit his mum, and, and you ask Sam and you say, do you love your mum? And he says, yeah, I love my mum. You'd be right to ask the question and say, how often do you think of your mother? Oh, never. Maybe once in a blue moon. You'd be, you could question whether he indeed loved his mother. So the question is, if you really love someone, your mind will turn to them. And that's true for our love for the Lord. If we love the Lord with all of our mind, it means that our minds are focused on him. He's a big part of our thinking. He's a major part of our thinking. Not, not a side uh, show here. He's the main show. Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That's what it means to love the Lord. Your mind is stayed on him, because it's pleasant to think about him. It's lovely, not boring. It's not a nuisance. It's beautiful to think about him and what he's done. Having your mind on the one that loves and cares for you is a beautiful thing. And then he tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of redemption, by way of remembrance. God wants us to have pure minds. He doesn't want us adulterated. If we're going to be thinking on him, he doesn't want us throwing in their sinful thoughts and other things. He wants our minds to be pure. He wants our minds to be whole. And the Apostle Paul says that he does it by stirring up, Paul says, I want to stir up your pure minds. I want to stir them up by way of remembrance, which means what I'm hoping to do here this morning is to stir up your pure minds by helping you to remember, by reminding us that God loves us and that we are called to take up certain responsibilities in our lives. He has equipped us to do a job. 
He's equipped us to live a certain way. He's equipped us with a new mind to think a certain way. And our job is to use it. Because he gets all the glory through it. And he does that through his word. Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Everything that was written in the word of God was written for our learning. Make use of it. Use it. Be transformed through it. We've been called, in one final verse, Romans 15.5, if, if you have your Bibles there. I'll close with this, with this verse here, these two verses. Romans 15.5 says, Now the God of patience... Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus that ye may with one mind and with and one mouth glorify God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does God call us then to do? If you want victory in your mind then be like-minded with your brothers and sisters. That means think together. Think the same. Look toward God together and to think of one another, to build one another up. That's what God wants to do. And the purpose of thinking of one another and loving one another and to help edify one another is that in the, in the, the end game of this, in Romans 5, 15, 6, it says that you may be of one mind and one mouth glorify God. You can't with one mouth glorify God if you are not of one mind. And then it says, this final verse, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now my conclusion today is that not to be conformed to this world. Don't give in. But be transformed. Allow your mind to be renewed through the word of God by following what the Spirit teaches you. And remember that you're not doing it alone. We're doing this thing together. And if we are of one mind, we can glorify God together with one mouth. And if you want to know God's will for your life, because oftentimes people will say to me, oh, what's the will of God for my life? It says in this very verse, the one we're looking at today, that if you do those things, if you do that, you'll be able to prove what is a perfect and acceptable will of God in your life. You'll know the will of God. It'll come out. God will make it very, very clear to you. But we've been called to use our minds for him. Now, my question to you this morning is, are you in your right mind today? Do you make, have you made a commitment to use your right mind? Because if you're not using your right mind, you're using the wrong one. Let's make a commitment to have our minds fixed on God, to follow him wherever he wants, and to develop those minds using his truth. Okay? God bless you. Have a good one. And thanks for your patience.